Let us look together this morning at John chapter 6 once again. John chapter 6. Before we read, let me remind you of where we are in John chapter 6. We are in the synagogue in Capernaum on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And in that synagogue is Jesus. He's the center of attention. He was that everywhere he went, rightly so. He's surrounded immediately by his 12 disciples. And then they are surrounded by a great multitude who have been following him the last couple of days very closely. But they're becoming skeptical about him and his claims. They say in so many words, if he will not keep feeding us, why should we keep listening to him? And so they are demanding more miracles and demanding more authentication as if he hadn't given enough already. And that brings us to this part of the discourse that we began to look at last time in verse 35. And so let's read that again and we'll read through verse 40. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him, may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. May God bless the reading of the word of God to our hearts. We left off right in the middle of these verses last Lord's Day at the end of verse 37. And you notice, as is so often the case in Holy Scripture, that verse 38 begins with the word for. It's a connecting conjunction. It shows that there's a close connection and a a close reasoning between what he had just said and what he's about to say. He is... Here, claiming the highest authority. For I came down from heaven. He is the one who was 
sealed by the Father, as he put it at the end of verse 27. The one who was authenticated, given a seal of of authentication by the Father in heaven. Again, he said it in verses or verse 33 that he came down from heaven. The bread of God is he or that which cometh down from heaven. Here in these verses, he clearly identifies himself as the bread of life who has come down from heaven. And so this is addressing the question of his authority. And this is what the Jews were concerned about here. It's what the Jewish leaders were oftentimes concerned about. And, of course, it's a legitimate concern. It's something that we ought to be concerned about. Who is Jesus? Does he have the authority of heaven behind him? And if he does, then it behooves us to believe on him and to hear him and to trust him and to follow him. That's the subject under consideration here. He speaks then of his authority in this way. I came down from heaven. This speaks of his eternal preexistence with the Father. And we're talking here, of course, about his divine nature. His human nature had a beginning in the womb of the Virgin Mary. His divine nature had no beginning, is eternal. This ties in so much with what we saw in the previous hour from our confession of faith. This complex person may speak of himself in terms of either his divine nature or his human nature. Here he is as a man on earth speaking with an earthly mouth and voice to people gathered around. And he says, I came down from heaven. As these people looked at him and listened to him, they could not grasp what he was saying. They could not fathom. They could not understand. To them, he looked like just anyone else. There was nothing unusual about his earthly appearance. He didn't have some halo around his head that followed him everywhere he went, like you see in some uh, goofy artwork. No, he looked like an ordinary man. But he says, I came down from heaven. He's telling us that his human nature was united with a divine nature. And that the divine nature existed from eternity with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He came down. Yes, he became incarnate, enfleshed as a man with a body and soul. He is this complex person, this dual nature. 
And therefore he could speak with this human voice as a man and say, I came down from heaven. The question of his authority is a question that we must firmly settle in our minds. And having settled it, never doubt it, he proved beyond any doubt who he is, his authority, and that he came down from heaven. He was divinely commissioned. Let us believe it, regardless of who does not believe it. Let us believe it. And, and we'll see that distinction here towards the end of the chapter. The, many departed in disbelief, and he turns to the disciples and said, in so many words, do you believe, or are you going to depart also? Well, listen, if we follow the crowd, and if we follow most of this world, we will not believe him. But we must determined by his grace to believe him and to believe on him no matter who else does or does not. Well, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here. He first addresses the subject of his authority here. I came down from heaven. And closely related is what his mission was stated in the remainder of verse 38, not to do mine own will but the will of him that sent me. The Jewish leaders had already denied his authority from heaven. In their minds, he was operating simply on his own will as nothing more than a man. <clears throat> In the eyes of the Jewish leaders, and, and we don't see any of them actually present on this day, but Oftentimes we see them uh, in various places, especially near Jerusalem. But in their minds, he was operating as nothing more than a man with no more authority than any of them had. And they actually thought that they had more authority than he. He's just a man, they thought, making outlandish claims, doing his will, doing his own thing, as we say. Of course, the difficulty was they could not account for the miracles that he did. They wanted to deny that there was any deity about him. They, they insisted on reducing him to nothing more than a man doing his own will and, and carrying out his own desires. But the problem was, what are they going to do with blind people having their eyes opened and deaf people having their ears opened and a little later, Lazarus being raised from the dead. This is, this is a problem. So what did they do? <clears throat> they said, oh, he does that with the power of the devil. It's the power of the devil doing these things. That was their only option. If they're going to deny that it's the power of God, it's certainly beyond the power of man to do the things that Jesus did. But he, of course, corrects their thinking and he corrects the thinking of this crowd here in Capernaum 
on this particular day. He says, I am on a mission from heaven, from none other than God himself. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Now, we should not think that the Son of God had a will or has a will that is in any way contrary to or could be contrary to the will of the first person, the Father. But we must understand this 38th verse in terms of his human nature and his human will and how that his human will, though distinct from his divine will, was always subservient to the divine will. Again, we're, we're dealing with a complex person that is incomprehensible to us. But he had a will in his divine nature. He had a will in his human nature. And he came not just to strike out on his own and carry out his own human will, but to submit his human will to the will of the Father in heaven. And he speaks of this more places than you might think. He says, for example, back in chapter 4, verse 34, my meat or my food is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. To do the will of the Father was, was what he ate and drank. It, it, it was all that he was. It was what he was about. It was his desire and his delight. Again, in chapter 5, verse 30, he says, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. The God-man Jesus Christ on earth did not operate independently of the Father in heaven. Again, in in chapter 5, verse 19, listen to him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son. Likewise, we read even from the Old Testament a few moments ago in Psalm 40, how that he says, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. And this is a messianic portion of the psalm, certainly. It's quoted that way in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, as you recall. I delight to do thy will, O my God. There was perfect submission on the part of the Son as God-man on earth, perfect submission to the Father in the economy of redemption, in, in this marvelous arrangement of the redemption of sinners that is the decree of the eternal God. We read 
again, various passages that speak of his obedience. They may not use the word will, but it's implied whenever we read of his obedience. Let me just give you some of the great passages. Hebrews chapter 5 says, Though he were a son, though he had all of the privileges and prerogatives of sonship, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. There was something to learn. There was obedience to learn, it says. And that is his submitting himself to the will of the Heavenly Father. Again, the familiar passage in Philippians chapter 2 says, Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Obedient to what? Obedient to the will of the Father. The will of the Father was that he should lay down his life, even the death of the cross. And then remember how he prayed under great distress in the Garden of Gethsemane. First he prayed, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But then, a little later, he prayed, O my Father, if this cup may not pass from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. When did he learn obedience? Perhaps nowhere else more clearly than in the Garden of Gethsemane lying on the ground in agony of prayer to the Heavenly Father. And so this is his claim to authority, that he came from heaven. He was commissioned by the Father, and he did the will of the Father. Now, the remaining two verses of this text give us some specific definition of what the Father's will was. Let's read these verses again. This is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. These are glorious statements, beloved. We get in these verses a glimpse into the mind of God and the purpose and plan of God, the will of God. We get a glimpse into the eternal counsels between the persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Son in particular, what we sometimes call the covenant of redemption, the, the agreement and uh, the commitment on the part of the Father and on the part of the Son with regard to the redemption of sinners like you and me. This is the Father's will. And let me try to outline it a little bit here. The first thing is, there is clearly a people given by the Father to the Son. He mentions this at the beginning of verse 39. 
of all which he hath given me. And we saw this last time in verse 37 also. All that the Father giveth me. And we looked at several passages in which this same phraseology is used. A people given by the Father to the Son. And what is implied in that gift of a people to the Son by the Father is the Father's choosing of those people. His setting His love upon them by His grace not for anything good in them, but simply because it was His good pleasure. He freely made them the objects of His saving love. And He chooses them. that They are one whole group, we might say, in His mind. And He says to the Son, I'm giving these to you. This is my gift to you. These are the ones that I'm putting into your hands. These are the ones that you're going to redeem. As a man on earth. That's the first thing. That's the Father's will. It was God's good pleasure and His good will to choose a people and to give them to the Son. And then... It's mentioned here, actually, in all of these three verses we're looking at here today. He sends the Son. And in the economy of redemption, we have to see this. The Son doesn't just jump up and uh, say, well, I'm, I'm going down to earth now. No, He is sent by the Father. It's all arranged. It's all according to plan and purpose. He says, I came down from heaven. How did he come down? Well, he was sent. He explains it there in verse 39. This is the will of the Father which hath sent me. And he says it in verse 40. This is the will of him that sent me. He is sent to accomplish the redemption of this given people, the people given to him by the Father. This is the Father's will. That the Son should come and should come into this world and be incarnate as a man for the redemption of his people. And it is the Father's will, furthermore, that none of these people should be lost. This is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing. None of those who were given by the Father to the Son will be unaccounted for or unredeemed. He said again in verse 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out and so comparing verse 37 with verse 39 here's the picture that we get none who initially come to Christ will be turned away and none who have come to Christ 
will afterward be turned out or cast off. None will be lost. How many ventures that men uh, set out to do have a 100% success rate? I mean, the best that man can do always has some loss figured in. If you are doing a printing job and you want a hundred copies of something, you'll make about a hundred and five or a hundred and ten just to have some excess because some might not feed correctly and some might get smudged and, and, and so you, we never have a, a, a perfect success rate. We manufacture automobiles and, you know, don't buy one that was put together on Monday morning. You might get a lemon. Well, most of them aren't lemons, but once in a while, listen, none of that with, with Jesus and the mission that he was sent to accomplish by the Father. He says, none that the Father has given me will be lost. This is his will and his good pleasure. He said, in Matthew eighteen fourteen, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And this concept of not perishing or not being lost is found again and again in Scripture. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He says it twice, back to back there in John chapter 3. Verses 15 and 16. This commission given to him by the Father not to lose even one soul that the Father gave to him was a subject that was much upon his mind. He took this mission seriously and thanked the Lord that he did. That's how we know our salvation is sure. But listen to him, or, or listen to Holy Scripture. We come down to the week of his crucifixion, and it says in John 13, verse 1, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. His love is a perfect love. Not one of them is lost. As he prayed, that great priestly prayer of John chapter 17, this subject was on his mind. He says, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. He prays this intercessory priestly prayer here. And upon his mind were all those that the Father had given him that he would give eternal life unto every one of them. And then, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Judas comes leading the, the band that
came to arrest him. He's concerned about protecting those that the Father had given him. And they come and they say, or, uh, he asked them, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. It's, it's night. It's dark. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, listen to him, let these go their way. If I'm the one you're looking for, then let my disciples go. Leave them alone. Don't take them under arrest. What's he doing? He's fulfilling the will of the Father that none that the Father gave him would be lost. He's showing his care and protection over the ones given to him by the Father. And so as we've seen already in in several of these statements by our Lord, he says things in a very emphatic or emphatically negative way, shall never ever thirst, never ever hunger, never ever be cast out, and so on. So he says here that he would lose nothing. If, if he were to state this positively, how would it be said? This is the Father's will that I will keep, that I will preserve, that I will guard, that I will save at all cost those that the Father has given me. We are, as Peter says, kept by the power of God through faith in Christ. This is the Father's will. And fourthly, the Father's will is, according to verse 40, that all who believe will be granted everlasting life. You see, there's kind of a repetition in verse 40 of verse 39, but it's not just a mere repetition, there's an added added information and an added explanation here in verse 40. This is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. And I'm fascinated with the word see here. Everyone that sees the Son and believes on him. You know, we've pointed out how that the Jews here, just a few verses earlier, spoke of seeing him and seeing miracles and so on, so that they might believe. Verse 30, what sign showest thou then that we may see and believe? And we tied that in with what Jesus himself says in verse 36, ye also have seen me and believe not. But it seems to me that here in verse 40, he's using the word see, not in terms of, of physical eyes and physical sight, but of spiritual sight or understanding, perceiving. And it is by the way, a different word than is, is used in the previous verses. This 
though we probably shouldn't make too much of that because they are synonyms. But he, it's the same word he uses, for example, in chapter 12, verses 44 and 45. Well, 45, he says, He that seeth me seeth him that sent me. The one who understands who I am understands the one who sent me, the Father in heaven, in other words. It is the seeing that Isaiah records when he gives the words of Jehovah as saying, Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. It's, it's the look of faith. It's, it's a synonym for believing. Everyone that sees and believes. It's as if he's saying to these, to these multitudes, You've seen me physically, but you haven't seen me spiritually. You, you know that I'm a man on earth and that I walk around and that I, I uh, get on a boat and travel and eat and so on. But you haven't really perceived and understood who I am. Those who have that knowledge and who believe on me in that way <coughs> have everlasting life. This, he says, is the will of the Father. And we could just park a long time on this phrase, everlasting life. It's one that is used frequently in the Gospel of John. I just mentioned a couple of places in chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. It's called everlasting life or eternal life. It's the same, same word. This is the Father's will that all who believe in Christ will live forever. Listen to how he says it in chapter 5 once again, verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. And the familiar words of chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them what? Eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. He won't lose one. You you get a handful of something and, you know, Maybe a few fall, but you, you keep most of them. Listen, in, in the hands of Christ, every soul given to him by the Father is safe. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Oh my. There's more than we can unpack there that that is so parallel to our text here today well in the last place the will of the father is that all that have been chosen and given to the son and redeemed by the son and are brought to faith in him 
and are given life in him will at last be raised up. Raised up, he says, at the last day. And he mentions this twice at the end of verse 39 as well as at the end of verse 40. He says, I will raise them up at the last day. This is God's will. This is what God has determined that Christ as the mediator should accomplish. The ultimate glorification, bodily resurrection, to be glorified with Christ forever of his people. He who has begun a good work in you will perform it or will finish it. Complete it until the day of redemption. And that day of redemption is what he's calling the last day here. It's the, the, the day that Christ comes again. Everyone that the Father gave to the Son will come to faith, will be given new life, and their very physical body will be raised up at the resurrection None will be lost in the process. None fall between the cracks. There are no casualties of war. Christ is 100% successful. Thank the Lord. All, everyone whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. And everyone that he did predestinate, them he also called and Whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. It's the same exact number. I heard someone recently say, there will be no empty seats in heaven. No empty seats. It's a glorious thought. But you know what is implied in all of this? And Christ, for his own purposes, didn't explicitly state it. Here, yet, we'll see more explicit statements as we continue on in this chapter. But what is certainly implied and uh, we might say anticipated here is that to raise up these who have been given to him by the Father, to raise them up, he must die himself because they are in union with him. And he as their head must lay down and die and rise again. And we are raised up together with Christ, we read in Romans chapter 8. As he rose from the dead for us, so we, he causes us to rise from the dead in as much as we are in saving union with him. And that resurrection is spiritual and inward in new birth. And it is bodily at the last day, which will be the the final installment of redemption as we enter into a glorious eternity that that this old body, with all of its sickness and all of its weakness and all of its decline and, and however long it molders in the grave, it will be raised up again a glorious body. 
united with our spirit and to be forever with the Lord. An old Scottish writer, George Hutchison, says it this way, As he stooped to our low condition and to be humbled with us, so he would have us exalted with him to his high condition. I think it's Calvin who put it like this, The Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men might become the sons of God. Let me point out one more little detail here before we we make some closing applications. Notice how the Lord moves here between verse 39 and verse 40 from the collective sense to the individual sense. He speaks in verse 39 of all that the Father hath given me. That's the collective designation. God's elect considered as a whole, as one unit. But then in verse 40, he speaks of the individual soul. Every one. This is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. Though it's glorious in the... in the aggregate it's especially comforting in singularity as we consider our own soul that yes if you're a believer in christ you're one of a very great number a very great body and yet you are one individual in it and god takes notice of every individual He knows every one of his sheep by name. And he's concerned about you and me, child of God. Oh, that's an amazing and and a comforting thought. So let's conclude with just a few observations here. Every believer in Christ is perfectly safe and secure. Let that sink in. To your heart, if you're a believer in Christ, you are safe. That, that there's no more secure place to be than given by the Father to the Son and to have the Son as your Redeemer. This is the will of God. J.C. Ryle says Jesus himself couldn't say it more strongly than he says it here in these verses. How safe we are in Christ. Think about how vulnerable and unsafe and unsure we feel in this world with society and its structures collapsing around us and our foundations crumbling. Here is certainty. Here is safety in Christ. Are you a weak and doubting believer today? Let me urge you to be of good cheer Christ won't lose you. There's cause for rejoicing, gladness, peace, inward calm in the midst of a world of storm. Let us keep this broad perspective 
in these days and in all of the dark and difficult seasons of the Christian life, let us be looking forward to the last day, the last day. We have many difficult days in in between, but the last day will be the best day. Do you understand what Jesus is saying here? Does it make sense to you? Does it resonate in your soul? Do you see it? Do you see Him? If so, then it is only because God has given you eyes to see it and and a mind to understand it. The people that Jesus was talking to here this day, they heard all these things and it didn't make any sense to them. They couldn't understand it. It leaves them utterly confused. And I'm saying that to say this. If you are able to understand what Jesus is saying here, and if it resonates in your soul, and you know that you believe on Him, then you may rest assured that God has in fact enlightened and illuminated your soul. And that's cause for assurance of salvation. And if you're a soul who is hesitant to profess Christ and to confess Him, then let this encourage you and move you and prompt you to publicly confess Him in a decisive way knowing that God has given you this understanding of Christ and that though though none of us understand perfectly all that he said, we understand sufficiently what he's talking about here. That, my friends, is saving faith. Let me close with just this observation. If it is true that all who believe have everlasting life and will be raised up at the last day, then what is true of unbelievers? They have no everlasting life. All they have to look forward to is everlasting death. They will not be raised up at the last day in a glorious body to be with Christ forever. There will be some kind of a resurrection, but it will be so different from this. It's called the resurrection of damnation back in chapter 5. And so let none leave today in unbelief, but believe on the Lord. Flee to Him. Come to Him. Run to Him. If you can't run, then walk to Him. If you can't walk to Him, then crawl to Him. Spurgeon said, if you can't crawl, if all you can do is sit and cry out to Him, then do that. And He will hear you.
and he will save you.